0: Hi, this is Vanessa Bonds, author of You Have More Influence Than You Think, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle.
1: Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing, challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Vanessa Bonds. Vanessa Bonds is a social psychologist and professor of organizational behavior at Cornell University. Her academic education began at Brown University studying psychology, and she completed her PhD in social psychology from Columbia University. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times and Harvard Business Review, and her research has been featured by the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and NPR's Hidden Brain. Vanessa lives and works in Ethica, New York, and is here to talk about her book, You Have More Influence Than You Think How We Underestimate our power of persuasion, and why it matters. Welcome, Vanessa.
0: Hi, thanks so much for having me.
1: It's such a pleasure. Tell me, when you were growing up, who's somebody who influenced and inspired you?
0: I would have to say my grandfather. He was so accomplished and had so many really immersive life experiences that can bring so much wisdom, but he was so modest, so you wouldn't know that. He never would talk about his PhD in biochemistry or his Purple Heart or his the way in which he helped his family during the Depression, you would hear about all those things from other people. And so you had this sort of respect for him and you wanted to impress him. And he just had this kind of quiet, modest influence about him, which I always just thought was amazing. And it's funny because people often, they have their person who influenced them and there's something that person said to them or some sort of wisdom they imparted. And he just wasn't the type of person to go around spouting his wisdom. But instead, you just always had him in your head of, would my grandfather like this? choice I made or I can't wait to tell him about this. And so just by being a good listener and someone you wanted to impress, he had so much influence.
1: Do you remember a time when you got to tell him some achievement of yours and how he responded?
0: I think one of my biggest achievements when I was in high school was getting into Brown. My dad had never gone to college and my mother went to a college that's no longer accredited, so nothing to write home about. And it seemed like such a long shot to get into an Ivy League school, but I was obsessed with getting into Brown for some reason. And I just felt like he would be so proud of me when it happened. And he was like, that was basically all he was just super proud. And again, it's this kind of silent, just he listened, he was happy, you felt good, but it's not like he said something and he had the exact right phrase, the thing that kind of made me feel like, ah, this was the right decision. It was just like, ah, I can tell he's proud in his quiet way. Yeah.
1: And you knew that because he had a PhD, he really understood the magnitude of the accomplishment that you had achieved. It means so much when you say it to someone and they understand that this wasn't just by luck or by happen chance.
0: Yeah, absolutely. He was the one sort of academic in the family. And so I think we definitely had that sort of connection.
1: Do you remember early on after you had graduated school, maybe when you were supervising people or just doing work and gathering with a a group and you were informed in making some decision or being patient with someone due to your grandfather's influence?
0: I definitely feel that when I'm talking to students, I often have students who come into my office and want to talk about their future and are lost. A lot of these students between 18 and 22 are really unsure what they want to do. I find that I try really hard not to say too much and to try to guide them to their own ideas about what's best for them. And so I think I channel him in that way. They're looking to you, almost desperate for you to tell them what to do. They're like, should I do this or this? And they want you to say this. Done. I leave with some wisdom. But I definitely try to channel that sort of quiet. Listening, asking questions, and helping them find their way.
1: It's much more in the philosophy of giving them a lesson in fishing rather than handing them a cooked fish.
0: Yes, for sure.
1: So often, people want to be told what to do. Isn't that true generally? is that we're looking to be influenced. We are much more open in our culture, in our businesses, in our team communications. We're looking to be told, we're looking to be led. Doesn't the research back up that observation?
0: Yes, it's so interesting to me because I feel like you see so many books on how to gain influence and talks on how to gain influence. And it seems like there's this almost insatiable desire to learn how to gain influence and get people to listen to you. But the thing that's always been interesting to me is that as a social psychologist who researches social influence, I see so many effects of the influence we already have on people and know that people are hugely influential, that we do look to others already without anyone trying to get us to look to them. We look to others to decide what to do. We listen to what they have to say, even when they're not trying to influence us. We notice when they're there, even when they're not waving their hands around. And so it's fascinating to me, this disconnect between people sort of sense that I need To find a way to get through to people, to influence people. And what I see in my research every day, which is that you are always getting through to people and influencing people, but you might not see it. It might not look the way you expect it to.
1: And where do we need to be looking differently in order to realize the impact that we have? Say that we're say that we're still in disconnected having meetings through Zoom. How do we look to realize the influence we have with our words, with our facial expression, with our decisions, and how we involve Involve others? How does that work?
0: Yeah, I think that one of the things I talk about in the book is that a great way to find out the influence you're having on other people that is very much kind of overlooked is to ask them because so much of what's going on in another person's head, we just don't know. And we can't really figure out by looking at their expression. So one thing that happens to me whenever I teach this 200 person lecture course, and I look out at the room and when the room's actually in person, and I see a bunch of blanks faces. There's maybe one person in the crowd who's nodding along and you really notice that person. But For the most part, you just can't tell that people are listening to you and that you're influencing them. And then months later, I'll get an email from a student saying, oh, I really love this lecture. Someone will come into my office hours and have just soaked it all up. And it's really hard to guess about the influence that you're having. And so a lot of it is someone actually telling you. And if they don't come up and spontaneously tell you, it's actually asking questions about how did you feel about this? Can you tell me what you were thinking when I mentioned this particular proposal?
1: Vanessa, this actually, Actually happened to you. Because when you applied to different PhD programs, you applied to and got into Brown. And one of your professors, who you really didn't realize you had made a connection with, wrote to you and made a specific point of letting you know that she was so pleased that you had gotten into the program. Can you recall what that was like when you got that message from that professor? And remember what that professor's name was?
0: Yeah, I can. That was fulfilling to get that email. It really made me feel like people do notice you more than you realize. So this was for a class when I was an undergraduate at Brown. I was a sophomore and it was a class in animal behavior and it was a 50 person class. It was a lecture. I'm sure back then I was sitting somewhere in the back of the class. I was not participating. I was way too nervous to raise my hand or answer questions. And then I did well in the class, but assumed that she wouldn't remember me for any particular reason. Her name is Ruth Colwell. When I applied to PhD programs, I got into Brown and I got this email from her that said, I remember you from my class. You were so wonderful. I'd be so thrilled if you came back and joined us back here at Brown. And I was just bowled over because I just assumed that she wouldn't remember me at all. And so that was, it was very enlightening to realize that even when you're in the sea of faces in this audience, that person up at the front of the room can still see you and notice you and remember you. Now,
1: as managers are leading groups Through Zoom, and even as we get back to doing it around a conference table or some other work situation, what are ways that we can become even better at making a habit or a practice of recognizing people to? build that connection, to let people know that you've heard them and want to let them know that their influence matters so that you have more of that connection, you build that feedback loop.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of it is about expressing it clearly and directly, telling people after a call, I thought that was a really great point, and here's what it made me think about. I think a lot of times we think these things in our heads. And from the research that I do, I know that when we don't say them directly and explicitly people assume that no one heard them or that just ignored them or didn't think they made a very good point. And so the more we can be explicit in our praise or that we really heard somebody, the better.
1: Now, your research, many of the experiments that you design and conduct on campus, people will say it really doesn't have the same applicability because you're dealing with undergrads, but you actually do something different. You don't have undergrads stay in the lab. You give them assignments to go talk to strangers. Talk about why that's an important design element and what happens as a result?
0: That's right. So in a lot of the studies that I do on campus, I bring in undergrads and they come into the lab and we tell them, okay, you're going to go out on campus and you're going to interact with strangers in one of a few different ways. So in some studies, they are going to go up and ask people for things. In other studies, they just go up to random strangers and give a compliment. And what we find is we ask them before they have these interactions, what do you expect is going to happen? Do you think this person going to say, yes to you if you ask them for a favor like for example to fill out a questionnaire or we ask them how good is this compliment going to make this person feel and what we find again and again is that people tend to underestimate the influence that they have when they go up to random strangers so people are more likely to say yes to them than they expect they feel better when we compliment them than we expect and the idea there is that it's not just something that happens what's so interesting about putting people in these kinds of contexts you think okay here's undergrad Going going out onto campus and just asking for sort of random requests or complimenting people in random ways. But in fact, when I talk to professionals, they say that they see these kinds of things all the time where they're so focused on this formal negotiation, and they're really prepared for that. And they don't underestimate their influence in that they feel really powerful and confident and they get themselves ready for that. But there's so many of these more informal situations where, oh, I should have asked this person for a little extra help, or I should have asked if that person would work with me on this deal. And these more informal sorts of cases are they show up in our daily lives even as undergraduate
1: my gosh i also remember from your book that 5000 people a year die of choking in restaurants i think that's probably a tempered number in 2020 when we weren't going to restaurants but previously 5000 people a year i think that, that they actually died of choking it is hard to say what were they thinking if they died but what i'm going <laughs> to ask you is isn't there research that shows that they were too embarrassed to ask for help can you give some insight into how important it is to ask strangers for help in a situation like that.
0: Yeah, this is a truly remarkable statistic. The issue is that people, when they feel themselves starting to choke and they're in front of other people, they stand up and start to leave the table to be alone because they're embarrassed. It really shows the power of embarrassment to the point where we're actually willing to sacrifice our own lives to avoid embarrassment. It's like the Jerry Seinfeld joke about how people would rather be in the coffin than giving the eulogy at a funeral. Like, we'd rather not be embarrassed and get away from people than stay there, be embarrassed, and have someone actually help us. So, it's this really fascinating sort of illustration of how strong our fear of embarrassment is and also how strong it is specifically around asking, around asking people for help and showing our vulnerabilities.
1: If asking is so important, how do we get better at it, Vanessa?
0: Part of it is understanding that people are not judging us as negatively as we think. We have a lot of ideas. Is about how interactions are going to go. We think that we're going to be more awkward when we ask than people actually view us as. We think people are more likely to reject us than they actually are. So it's recalibrating that the impression we think we're going to make when we ask for help is actually much worse than the actual impression we end up making. That people actually like helping other people. They actually enjoy interactions and they go much less awkwardly than we think that they're going to go. And that in the end, we don't actually look as weak and vulnerable as we might think. So it's just recalibrating that these impressions we have are really overblown.
1: People actually want to see us succeed. They'd much rather. I know that from speaking and like you teaching in classrooms, they want to hear a good lecture. They want us to be prepared and come up with coherent thoughts and illustrative examples that bring it home. So any thoughts of, oh my gosh, they're wanting us to bomb are purely fantasy. And it's not a healthy fantasy to engage in. Now, wasn't there a TED Talk that you quote in the book. His name was Zhe Zhang, who did the TEDx talk on rejection therapy, how he used experiments to desensitize himself to the obstacles to asking.
0: So he talks about rejection therapy, which is basically forcing yourself to get rejected every day. It's been turned into a card game where basically you pull out a card and you're told to ask someone to do something ridiculous each day with the hopes that they will actually reject you. The funny thing is that in my studies, I was actually... Asked by a participant once if I was doing studies on rejection therapy because my studies are so similar to the kinds of things that he does, and we find that it's actually really hard to get rejected, and that's something that he found as well. And so the cards get more and more wacky, and you're asking random people to, for example, just dance with you down the street or to give you a compliment. In one, he asks a police officer if he can sit in his cop car, and another one he asks if he can use the the microphone at Costco. Just say an announcement. The funny thing is that in so many of these cases, his goal is to get rejected. Sometimes he does, but people are so kind when they do it. So when he asked this manager at Costco, if he can use the microphone to make an announcement, he says, no, I'm sorry. I can't let you do that. But how about this? I'll buy you lunch in the house at Costco. So people are really, they want to help us. They don't like to reject other people. And so he finds that actually rejection is not as awful as he thought it was going to be. You can desensitize yourself to rejection using this kind of method. Also that people are way kinder when they do reject you than you expect. The term
1: for that that I recall was insinuation anxiety. So if we're looking to ask people for help, and we have some obstacles in the way of that projection is really what's called insinuation anxiety. Is that term correct?
0: So, that is one of the terms. So, my colleague Sunita Saw at the business school at Cornell uses that term. There's also more classic terms about protecting someone's face. But basically, the idea of insinuation anxiety is pretty self explanatory. We're worried, we have this anxiety about insinuating something negative about somebody else. So, basically, if someone asks us for something, so for example, if I go up to you. And I say, hey, can I borrow your phone? And you say, no, what does that say about me? You're insinuating something like, I don't trust you to give my phone back or you're going to do something weird with it, or I don't really like you. There's so many ways in which that interaction could insinuate something negative about the person doing the asking. And we hate doing that. We really hate embarrassing people and making things awkward. And so we just go along and say yes to requests, even when we don't really want to It's
1: actually on the person who's being asked the request, who will more likely comply rather than create this anxiety by refusing the request. That's right. Yeah, that's important. And when you're wanting to say yes, it should be an easy yes. And when you want to say no, it should be something you say no for. I just want to encourage everyone listening to experiment and take maybe two steps beyond your comfort zone so that you're asking more and finding out rather than staying in this gray area of never knowing and not getting the help you need. Yeah, Do you have research that supports the benefit of just putting yourself out there and asking a little bit more than you're comfortable asking?
0: Definitely find that you are more likely to get yeses than you think. So if you put yourself out there, for example, we work- with a Team in Training, which is a program at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society where people basically train to run a race and they go up to people and they ask for donations for a race sponsorship. What we found when we worked with them is that people thought that it was going to be a lot harder to raise the funds they needed to run a race than it actually was. And so when they actually did this, they went out and they asked people, they had a much easier time of raising the donations they needed to raise than they actually expected. On the flip side of all this, of course, is that that one of the things that we find in our research is that it's hard to say no to people. And we say yes to positive things like donations to charity and helping someone out. And that's great. And then everybody feels good. But the flip side of that is that people actually find it hard to say no to things that maybe they should say no to. And so I've add this caveat that we should definitely ask for things more when it makes sense to ask for them when everyone would benefit from us asking. But at the same time, that there are cases where we should probably hold back and maybe not ask so much because we fail to realize how hard it is for people to say no to the request they feel uncomfortable with.
1: Are you thinking of asking people to work on a project that might intrude on their personal hours? Are you asking for people to meet a deadline, even though you've fallen behind in work, and it will require extra effort and time in order to make up the lost time on it?
0: Exactly. So some things that we assume, basically, if I ask someone to stay late or take on this extra project or work on the weekend, that if they're not comfortable with, it, they'll just say no, and we'll deal with it. But people don't actually feel as comfortable saying no to us than we think. And so we want to be mindful of that when we do ask for things that maybe are stretching the boundaries. So it could be things that contribute to this issue around work-life balance, like asking someone to work too much potentially. And it also extends to things like romantic requests in the workplace, asking our coworker or particularly a subordinate on a date. It's also we've shown even harder for them to say no to those kinds of requests than we tend to think.
1: And what people what can people remember under those circumstances that will help make it easier to say no and maintain their boundary so
0: the things that make it easier for us to say no when we're the ones who want to actually be saying no are to buy ourselves some space what we find is that when you're being asked for something on the spot in the moment face-to-face, that's when it's really hard to say no. And so if you're the asker and you really want a yes, you create those kinds of conditions. On the other hand, if you're the one being asked and you want to say no, you want to eliminate, like destruct those conditions. And so basically, if you're being asked face-to-face, I tell people to take a beat, tell someone, actually, I, I can't tell you right now. I need to check my schedule or check with someone else. Or you come up with some excuse and you say, can you send it in an email? Or I need to think about it. And so you don't have to do something on the spot. And you don't have to do it face to face, which are the main sort of things that we find make it really hard to say no.
1: I think that's really important. I know that there was an example of a guy who took rejection to a different level. And he was somebody who had was rejected by I think it was a girlfriend or um, a fiance. Jason Comley was his name. Tell me what happened with Jason and what that experience.
0: So Jason Comley is actually the founder of rejection therapy originally. And he was rejected by his girlfriend and feeling really just down on himself. But he had also been studying a lot about military training. So he decided to deal with this rejection in this way where he was going to intensively train himself out of this concern with rejection and really desensitize him to rejection. And so he came up with the idea of rejection therapy and basically getting yourself rejected every day until you no longer are hurt by it.
1: What were some of the things that he did to really build that large buffer of not feeling like he could be rejected and have it affect him?
0: So he started by asking for smaller things. He would go and just ask someone for a mint or something. And he learned pretty quickly that people will just agree to those things. So just like I found in my studies, people are much more likely to agree to these small kinds of requests than we tend to think. And so he wasn't getting anywhere by trying to get rejected by asking for little things and so he had to come up with these kind of wacky different kinds of requests and so he came up with requests like asking a waitress to dance with him at a restaurant and things that asking a stranger on the street to race him down the street suddenly. Just silly things that people presumably would feel comfortable saying no to him about but in fact he even found with those things that people were saying yes.
1: One of the takeaways from that I think is that people can have their request rejected 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 without feeling rejected. Isn't that really what he was after was to push that boundary. So he had that experience and could ask things and let the response to them not affect his self esteem.
0: Exactly. So rejection tends to be so fraught, because we take it really personally. And it's that makes it fraught on both sides. It is really painful to be rejected. It's also really painful to reject someone, which is really fascinating. And part of it is that both parties are assuming this rejection means something it doesn't, right? someone rejects me, they reject me and not this just small, specific request I just asked. If I'm rejecting someone, I worry they're going to think I reject them and not just the small, specific request. So part of it was realizing that separating out the request from the person, that I can be rejected for this thing, but it doesn't mean that person is rejecting me specifically.
1: Or that you could ask again or change the way that you're asking in order to keep that dialogue going.
0: Yeah. So we have some studies showing that people think that if they've been rejected once, that if they went back to that same individual and asked them again for something else, that they're likely to reject them again. Because we assume that, oh, that person did reject me or there's something about that person, they're not a very helpful person. When in fact, more often than not, people are rejecting a very specific request at a very specific time. And so what we find is that when we ask people to go and ask someone for something, they're rejected and then we say, okay, will that person say yes or no to this follow-up request? People assume they'll say no. But in fact, people are more likely to say yes to the follow-up request because they feel so bad for saying no the first time. So we have this real miscalibration about asking people more than once for something.
1: And I think that the whole overgeneralization of what a rejection means is something that everyone can learn from in their own experiences as we go about asking for things day to day. So I have a request for you. Are you ready for the my quest for the Best Lightning Round? Absolutely. Oh, I feel so good. I think that's probably part of it is to not amplify it and say that it feels good as well as not to amplify it and say I feel bad about it. But I love going into the lightning round and we'd probably do it anyway.
0: How could I say no anyway, right?
1: Vanessa, at the beginning of the interview, about someone who influenced you growing up, and you talked about your grandfather and how, despite his accomplishments, he was an incredibly humble person. When you were a teenager, Vanessa, what's a song that you loved?
0: So, a song, so I'm I'm gonna expand it a little to early 20s. So, I loved the Velvet Underground's I Found a Reason, and I loved this line that they had that was, I do believe if you don't like things, you leave. I was perpetually someone who would never give up on anything, like an overachiever who never knew when it was time to just let go, quit the team, find something else. That song got me to quit my first job, which was not a good fit. And I kept listening to that lyric over and over.
1: Wow, that's powerful. Did you play a sport in high school or college?
0: I did. I played many sports in high school. I played basketball, softball, and field hockey. And then I played field hockey in college.
1: That's great. As if it wasn't challenging enough at Brown. So your mission is to help people understand that we have more influence than we realize. If someone's listening to just this part of the interview, what is a tip or an insight that you could share that'll help convince people to a much higher degree that we do have more influence than we realize?
0: I would say just realize this, that if you ask someone for something, they're more likely to say yes than you think. If you say something nice to someone, it's likely to mean more than you think it's going to mean. That in most cases, whatever you're going to say to somebody else is going to land harder than you actually expect it to. In
1: writing this book, what was the most difficult thing that you encountered that you needed to ask other people for?
0: I wrote this book during the pandemic and I had a two-year-old and a six-year-old at home with me. There was a lot of asking my spouse for help with the kids and that was, yeah, there's a lot of trading off with childcare.
1: Robert Cialdini is someone who also influenced your book and helped you because you had contact with him. What's an insight that you gained from interacting with him that you've come to really appreciate and value highly yourself.
0: So Bob differentiates between these two types of norms that influence people. One is prescriptive norms. So that's what we know we should do in a situation. So there's a sign that says don't litter, right? The other is descriptive norms. And that's what people actually do in a situation. And that's all the littering on the ground around that sign that says don't litter. And what he shows is that we are, if even if we know we're not supposed to litter, if we know we're not supposed to do something, if we see that everybody else is doing that, that we're going to fall along and just do that. We care more about that descriptive norm. And the thing that has really resonated with me in the book is that we create those descriptive norms ourselves. We are part of that descriptive norm. So when we litter next to a sign that says don't litter, that's influencing so many other people more than we might realize.
1: That's a powerful lesson for people to remember is how we influence our own descriptive norms by how we treat our environment. What would you say is the best $100 purchase that you've made in the last six months?
0: So I'm a big person who about purchasing time and experiences rather than things, I'd say a massage. To get over this pandemic, that was definitely the best purchase in the past six months. Ah,
1: wonderful. What book have you given as a gift that hasn't been one of your own the most in the last year or two?
0: Anne Lamont's Bird by Bird. I just read it recently and fell so in love with that book that now I've been recommending it to everybody. It's it's supposed to be a writing book. She's she's written fiction and nonfiction, and it's geared towards writers, but it's so much more than that. It's It's funny, and she has so many life insights, and it's just fabulous.
1: Neat. Complete this prompt for me. I know I'm being successful when...
0: I know I'm being successful when the things I'm producing in the academy really feel like they're helping people in the real world. Like I'm not just studying tiny little effects or things that people don't really care about, but when I see that people's eyes really light up and they say, oh, I'm going to try this or that the next time I do something.
1: Here's another prompt. One of the qualities I look for in good leadership is
0: being a good listener.
1: And what's the evidence of good listening that you observe?
0: A big thing that comes, I think, with having power or influence or being a leader in a situation is that people immediately defer to you. And so, for example, leaders who really hold themselves back and don't start the conversation, don't put their ideas out there first, I think are much more effective at actually finding out what everybody else thinks and getting more ideas on the table. Because so often a leader will speak first and everyone's, yeah, that's a good idea. I mean, who's going to go against the leader now? But if they wait to speak last, if they really listen and encourage people to talk and wait and hold back before they pass judgment or put their own ideas out there, I think that's really a valuable asset.
1: Well, Vanessa, you have had such a great influence on me as well as everyone listening today. I want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best, where we talked about the importance of influence, because nothing really has as much of a role to play in our day-to-day interactions whenever we want something, whether it's a job, whether it's a meeting, whether it's a promotion, whether it's the next challenging assignment, whether it's a date, whatever we want to do, we need to influence others. And your research and your writing and your work help us do that better and understand how to get there faster. We talked about the importance of actually getting out in the world and seeing that what we're asking for is much more readily received than we initially think it might be. And that the positive words that we share with others are, more have a deeper impact and mean so much to those who we share them with. We talked about how Jason Comley pioneered rejection therapy and how his work was popularized by Jay Jing's TED Talk. And for these reasons and so many more, I want to thank you, Vanessa Bone, for joining me on my quest for the best.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Vanessa, before we say
1: goodbye for now, where can people find out more about you and your work online?
0: They can go to my website at www.vanessabones.com
1: Vanessa, we're going to link to your website. We're going to link to your social media, as well as the bookstores where people could pick up your book, You Have More Influence Than You Think, to make it super easy for everyone listening to this podcast to go to the show notes and continue to follow and learn from you. Vanessa Bonds, author of You Have More Influence Than You Think, I want to thank you again for joining me on My Quest for the Best.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much.
1: Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app. So you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insiders e newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.